0: geopolitics and empire is joined by emmanuel pastrich who served as the president of the asia institute and as the director general of the institute for future urban environments he's declared his candidacy for president of the u.s as an independent in february of 2020 welcome to geopolitics and empire mr pastrich
1: it's an honor to be here
0: i came across your work uh recently you're writing your your interviews and i thought i had to have you on because you have many unique uh, insights, and you've got a, a fascinating life experience. And it, it's kind of hard to peg uh, who, who you are because of your interesting background. If you if you could just briefly maybe tell us uh, who is Emmanuel Pastre?
1: Right. Well, that's a that's a tough one, and I'm maybe not the most qualified uh, to uh, explain myself. Uh, I I came from a I guess relatively establishment background in the United States. Uh, I'm still wearing a tie. Uh, and and uh, I was a professor of Asian studies so I had uh, I spent a good part of my, my life in in Korea and Japan and I studied Chinese Japanese and Korean uh, and when I was at the University of Illinois back in 2000 2001 I became quite committed uh, to opposing uh, the totalitarian rule in the United States which continues to the day and as a result of my efforts with others uh, I ended up being basically unable to work in the United States and was in Korea from 2007. I tried to come back once in 2019, which uh, was not very successful. And I'm back after three years away uh, in the United States, just arrived a week ago, uh, trying my best to uh, uh, address real issues in the United States and to try and sort of puncture a hole in this uh, uh, blanket of of, uh, hypocrisy and, and fraud which has uh, crept into every aspect of American society and, of course, by extension, around the world. Talk about real things. And finally, uh, I had declared in 2020, February, when I saw uh, what was happening with this so-called Biden-Trump election, uh, that I would try and run uh, as an independent and address real issues, uh, mm-hmm. n- not with any particular you know, leftist or rightist uh, perspective, but try and just scientifically address what were the problems in the United States. And this, of course, caused a lot of problems. Uh, but it did give me the chance to get in this habit of giving talks, speeches, which has now become my primary means of expressing myself. Uh, and I hope we can return uh, to an intellect, a, a politics based on intellectual inquiry, on a moral. Uh, commitment uh, and a, a real engagement with uh, with citizens as opposed to a sort of fraudulent feel-good uh, 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 approach to uh, uh, blanket marketing.
0: Yeah, I, I purchased your book. I think people can download it for free and you go through a lot of your uh, points in there. Uh, I agree with much of what you say. And maybe just to start with what you were get uh you know touching on what's wrong with the u.s i mean I'm, I'm from illinois i'm from chicago and uh 20 years ago i saw a lot wrong i mean i'm a, I'm a history major right. f- former teacher former pre- professor of history and i could just see the cycle of history you know the the American. where, where were you uh, teaching i well i taught abroad in kazakhstan and oh so okay and, so and we're not in, and right. in yeah. uh, that's that's part of the story i, I left i decided to leave the U- united states right. and uh w- when i when you're born as american uh you know i never thought we were an empire i thought we were just a country in you know, the united states right, right. and then you you realize that, like some of the stuff we'll get into like nine eleven and other things it's like well it's like we're an empire and we're the biggest empire in the history mm-hmm. of the world and we're doing all starting all these wars killing millions right. of people i mean there's a lot of good america has done but a lot of bad we have to be fair and there's the militarism uh i think you know we're, we're bankrupt uh, financially you talk about that i also think spirit spiritually we're bankrupt spiritually, intellectually we're, we're we're at each other's throats there's the the techno authoritarianism uh, i might get you in the, into trouble you know in april i believe the department of homeland security told paypal to shut off my account i'm banned from using paypal and oh, so well congratulations uh, yeah and so if you want to tell us basically what, what's wrong with uh america as you see it a message from our sponsors our friends at Above Phone are on a mission to help people break free of the algorithm ghetto. They're starting with our phones because 99% of people today are addicted to the big tech ecosystem. We have alternative technologies available that Ramiro and his team at Above Phone have been evaluating. These tools are superior, not just alternatives. Are you ready to play above the rules of the surveillance capitalists? Let's remove our reliance on them for information, apps, and communications, and break free of their tracking. If we don't contribute to alternative software with our participation, we may lose the few choices we have. When you get a de-googled above phone, everything is made simple, out of the box. Just plug your cell service in and go, or use Wi-Fi only. The Above Privacy suite provides important services using open-source software that is run reliably and privately. It gives you a VPN, private email, search engine, encrypted chat, voice, and video calls, calendar service, and an anonymous internet phone number. Because getting people on better systems is so important, they've upped their dedication to support. With each phone, you get a 30-minute support call, 24-7 email, chat support, and a knowledge base. Just like with our food, water, healthcare, schooling, and security, our tech needs to be sovereign. Browse available phones now and subscribe to the privacy suite at abovephone.com. Also, if you need health insurance that covers you wherever you may roam, Check out my friend James Guzman's Borderless Health Insurance. One of the great things about living internationally is saving money on healthcare, but private care overseas can be expensive. Go to borderlesshealthinsurance.com to watch a short presentation on expat and digital nomad healthcare and sign up for a free consultation to review your options.
1: Well, it's, uh, I mean, to some degree, it's a cyclical process. If you have any uh, institution, government, empire, and it runs 250 years, uh, you start to have these institutional uh, uh, contradictions and collapse. Uh, To some degree, it's because the institutions that originally set up no longer correspond with the reality of of how decisions are made or how the economy works. Uh, So I, I happen to like the U.S. Constitution, and I refer to it. I think there's I mean, it's not a perfect document, but it gives some basic principles for governance, which I think are, are quite unique. It, it was a unique, successful experiment in history. It doesn't mean the United States was successful. It just means that that concept of constitutional government, uh, where they took some of the essence of what was dis- dis- discussed in, 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 in Greece and Rome and sort of tried to uh, take the empire out of it, that was the, the concept behind it, uh, was a noble experiment that offers much for us. Uh, however, especially, I mean, it was flawed from the beginning. Obviously, slavery, the the uh, destruction of the of the native peoples, uh, all sorts, of the idea of real estate and how it was imported here and enclosure, uh, all that obviously was a flaw. But we did have some some good aspects of the United States, which sometimes were positive for the world. And uh, uh, but over the last fifty years the militarization of the economy and then this move uh, towards a radical expansion uh, of financialization privatization and in that process i think we also have to denote the end of the cold war which has been celebrated of course in the what we're you know force fed in media and in the in academics but the end of the cold war uh, was essentially the end of an opposing perspective in the world. Uh, so basically during the Cold War, I, I'm not saying Soviet Union or the People's Republic of China got it all right. They got, many things were terrible, but they at least had a different perspective to suggest that things like class struggle, concentration of capital, uh, cl- you know, class issues and ideology were topics to talk about. <laughs> you know, These were things that were important. And when... The Soviet Union, China, basically went over to basically a modified sort of neo uh, neo capitalist uh, with you know a little bit of socialist characteristics mixed in the in the in the in the soup. Then we lost that in the world, and so as a result, uh, from the 1990s on, increasingly these ridiculous ideas about. Economics in the United States, or in in Japan, or in Germany, uh, in the 1970s, um, through the 80s, even, there were professors of economics uh, who uh, took Marxist economics as a major part of their approach to economic theory. Um, there are zero people like that now, except for, of course, you know, bloggers. But um, so we've lost this. Potential for other perspectives. It's not saying that Marxism is, I'm not a Marxist, by the way, but I'm sympathetic to Marxist analysis. And I think that, you know, addressing class issues and, and finance and ideology, um, it's, it's critical. And so we now are in this position in which consumption, growth, exports are assumed by basically everybody to be, um, essential for the well-being of people or that the stock market has any relationship uh, other than parasitic uh, to the lives of ordinary citizens, these things are accepted as as sort of um, re- truths, right? You know, they're talking about st- increase the stock market is good for you. And we have these whole variety in the United States, where we're now, uh, of these sort of cardboard messiahs, whether it's Bernie Sanders or AOL or Donald Trump, who come up with these these quirky ideas about what economics is, or you know what, how we can be more progressive concerning with working people, but essentially they buy into the entire economic money system, and they're not interested in saying why don't we make people independent from money? Right? They're not trying to say we can support ourselves. We don't have to spend money. You know, people in the 19th century, uh, most of them didn't use money. They they used it. You know on they go to market once a month to buy things they needed some you know metal products or certain uh, items clocks but basically their daily lives they were able to support themselves and their communities were able to support them that is real economics that's positive and that's actually that's the real meaning of market economy horrible term that's been so distorted market economy is you go to the you know the the market in your in your community and you sell carrots or the chairs you made and you you exchange them with your neighbor who has selling butter or you know fabrics or whatever and you have this mutual supporting system now market economy means you know google and facebook and all these techno tyrants which are essentially they print up their own money based on devaluing our money, right? And they they control the entire system and they set up these IT systems like what we're doing now, right? In which we're forced to communicate with each other, to exchange, to buy things it, through them. They control the means of production, means of distribution, means of sales, and the means of communication and increasingly the ideological structure itself. So they produce, you know, these false conservatives and these false progressives uh, who we're supposed to, you know, buy.
0: Yeah, th- that was my next question. I and mean, we, we've got an oligarchy in the U.S. And I think it's it's just as bad as the, you know, the, the, the Russian oligarchies or the, you know, mm. in, these, in these foreign dictatorships. It's just what? I think the issue for us is that uh, Americans have a much, you know, they're, we're more prosperous. And so. We kind of care less as long as, you know, we, we can buy our nice cars and, and iPhones and stuff. We don't really care about our oligarchy, but they're just as bad, if not worse. And you talk about, again, sham elections. As you just mentioned, I agree with you. Uh, you know, just to read a quote from your book, you say, or one of your articles, I can't recall. I say that if we do not have an election in which someone like me can be a candidate, uh, can have a chance to be covered in the media that we are not holding uh, elections, but rather holding an impressive sham. We have no intention of recognizing any such a sham elections. In fact, until there is an election in which someone like me can get proper attention and the chance to be on the ballot, we will not recognize any of these uh, elections. So, you know, just a quick thought on the elections, because as you say it, our left right, we've got fake conservatives, uh-huh. fake, fake left. They're not no one is anti war anymore on the left. True. Um, there's a handful on the right. But they, they they all stay within a certain bounds. None of them ever cross the red line.
1: Right. Well, I I think I mean obviously the decision to run uh, as independent candidate for president uh, was a serious one. I mean I, I I take it quite seriously, and I put a lot of work into the into the um, into the speeches. I have my book. I mean the the preface to my book is out in uh, forty languages. I I don't have. Um, uh, Croate or I mean I have but I have you know many other languages uh, uh, from Central Europe for that matter uh, and uh, I so it was both in the United States and also globally to say let's have an alternative view uh, and it was we've been basically blocked out. so I, I think uh, these elections are have they they were always flawed. I mean, I wouldn't say there, there was a perfect time uh, but they there's a catastrophic collapse of the political, Uh, in the last uh, 20 years. Uh, And the result has been these sham elections. As I was suggesting in my recent post, um, now politics is determined not by elections, but by um, false flag operations. You know, that those 9-11 or COVID-19 or other, these mass shootings, whatever, these are how how politics are determined, not by uh, voting at the ballot. Uh, So uh, in order to achieve, to go back to some sort of, Logical, scientific, rational process. Um, I think we have to look back in the United States or other countries and say the basis for the United States in the beginning and the, the ways in which it was successful was based on revolutionary thought. That the United States is a revolutionary country. That's the core of the start, and that we have to say uh, that when you, as as the Declaration of Independence notes very clearly, and this is the two founding documents, right. Declaration of Independence and the Constitution says that in the course of events, if the powers, I don't have the exact quote, but is seized by a small number of people and it becomes a tyranny, tyranny, then you not only are entitled to, but you have a moral obligation to oppose this and to overthrow it and create a system which is democratic, transparent and accountable. And that that would be my position. So I, I run as a candidate. I love if people vote for me, if they put me on TV, uh, and uh, if I got attention like, uh, you know, Donald Trump or all these, you know, uh, bedridden people like uh, uh, Joe Biden. But that's not my purpose. My purpose is to be revolutionary. And so I think the best way that I can affect politics, that we can affect politics, is to take a stand and say, this is the truth. This is what needs to be done. I'm not interested in whether the New York Times or CNN will cover me because they're so corrupt and useless and dangerous that, as far as I'm concerned, we should lock them all up too. I have no no interest in 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 uh, pandering to them, and I would keep, I would also say that that was the major mistake that was done by made by so many people in the United States over the last as we fall into this uh, late imperial decay was this idea that. Oh, I have this good idea. Might be a good idea. And in order to get it to be achieved, I'm going to compromise. You know, I'm going to downplay it, soften it up a little bit, modify it in such a way that, you know, one, New York Times will mention me, or two, some wealthy donor will give me money. Uh, and so I haven't, I guess my position would be to say, I'm not gonna do that. And that this is the only way, the only way to achieve real change in the United States and globally is when we draw a line in the sand. That <laughs> that's that. It may seem pointless. You might see me as you know uh, someone a, a failure. I was not able to work in the United States from 2007. I've been unemployed for long periods of time. Was not all pleasant, but I, I think that was much more politically meaningful. Than if I had compromised on 9 11 and other issues and tried to play the game here in Washington D C,
0: just real quick on 9 11, not to go in depth, I'm just get your big picture mm-hmm. take. I mean, I, I had a uh, one of my subscribers recently tuned to the email list told me they're they're signing off because I believe 9 11 was a false flag uh, operation, right. and I'm like. I mean, so obvious. For, for me, it's not you're not a serious person. And my response was like, I mean, in grad school in Geneva, Switzerland, I was taught this sign type of thing. And this is a basic historical fact. The Roman Empire has done it. Uh, you know, Nazi Germany has done it. Oh, it's an ancient
1: Russia, tradition.
0: Yeah. Ru- Russia has done it. It's a basic military. T- NATO has done it. Japan yeah. has done it. You know, Israel has done it. Turkey has yeah. done it. Tell me a country which has not run the false flag uh, operation, but just... Uh, uh, you know, real quick, you, you mentioned previously, but also in one of your writings, you've written that false flags serve as a critical tool right. in, in American politics by creating mass trauma in the population that inhibits the formation of organized resistance or the possibility of rational intellectual uh, discourse. And so just your quick take on 9 nine eleven.
1: Well, I think in that respect, nine eleven was extremely successful, basically shut down the American mind. And we got to use bloch's term uh, sleepwalkers right the people who are intellectually extremely well educated they they read books they're lawyers doctors you know businessmen uh, but they're incapable of conceiving they're basically sleepwalking through history unable to conceive of these higher level uh you know uh trauma uh, shifts in in governance and so 9/11 i mean it's it's in some ways it's classic in that respect I mean, if you take in one semester of physics in high school, you can figure out that this is impossible. It cannot possibly be true. And I, I watched it. I was in the U.S., University of Illinois, Urbana-Champaign at the time. I saw it. I was not a physics major. I said, "This is not possible. Something else is going on here." But there's no way that you know two, two, you know, if it's what happened, if two uh, airliners crash into uh, a. a Crash that it will cause three buildings made of reinforced steel ca- ca- concrete uh, to collapse N- cannot possibly be true. So, but I think looking back on it now, that that was the whole point. Right, was to just like COVID nineteen was to force feed the population and a story which was not credible from the beginning. And the purpose of that was to degrade the ability of citizens to think for themselves scientifically. And and to co-opt an entire class of I mean intellectuals. I, I've written about this in my based on a, an earlier French article, a, a book from the 1920s. But the the treason of the intellectuals, and that was a large part of 9/11, right? All and of COVID 19. This large class of privileged intellectuals, people like myself, who thought that they would, who decided, and I saw this at the University of Illinois and and elsewhere that they would go along with this incredibly stupid, unbelievable argument on physics and on geopolitics to explain this trauma. And it was, and they, they went along with it. They, they took the money. Uh, And I think the fact that the United States, and there are always going to be some intellectuals like that, but the fact that there were so many on both 9-11 and COVID-19 who were willing to buy, I have a classmate, you know, who's a, uh, teaching at MIT, and I talked to her, and uh, she <laughs> talking about COVID nineteen. She just, you know, followed the, the the rules, and I know that she's smart enough to know that it just doesn't make any sense scientifically. So science, uh, as as I put it in one of my articles, uh, um, technology uh, buried science in a shallow grave. So we're into a technological system in which technology is mistaken for science. We move towards this scientism as opposed to science where science is, you know, the truth is determined by experts at Harvard or Stanford or whatever, uh, as opposed to by a rigorous investigation of, of 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 the phenomenon. And that started before 9-11. I mean, in some ways, it, you can trace it back. In some ways, it started with Oklahoma, which was the, the sort of the, the precursor uh, to uh, 9/11. And I think without, if you hadn't had the trauma of Oklahoma bombings, that 9/11 would have been harder to pull off. Um, and and finally, I would conclude by saying uh, that many of these things are, they're planned out. So the uh, DARPA, the Defense uh, Acquisition—I can't remember the, the the main research institute for the Pentagon and RAND and other now there's a proliferation of these think tanks or you know consulting firms from the 1960s they carried out a whole series of studies in psychology mass trauma etc in which they essentially came up with uh, these classified plans some of which have been declassified most of which have not which are basically how to transition a population from one state to another uh, over time through the use of mass trauma and that's what, you know, 9-11, so Oklahoma was the first sort of point, mass trauma, 9-11, COVID-19, and there were a few in between. All of them, uh, at one, on one hand, they had very specific agendas, what they're trying to do, but there was a larger agenda, which is to create a totalitarian state, which people are not aware, as you mentioned, is totalitarian, right? That they live, there's a a, a radical Alienation uh, to sort of transpose between uh, the reality on the ground and the manner in which people from the ruling class, intellectuals who set the tone and the 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 uh, the, the the, message, uh, perceive the world. So we live in this fantasy world in which this is how the United States works, and then there's a reality of how it really works, and we we've basically they they become two unrelated uh rounds.
0: yeah just to comment on the academic aspect i mean i worked in education and academia here in mexico and just as you describe it i find it sad people just will all they they, they care about their their money their salary their wage right, uh, right. and their and their career and i I want the truth and you know i had my classes taken away from me because i taught at the high, high school and university and my trick was it's harder to get fired from the high school than it is the university and for one, yeah one or two semesters they took away my courses at the university in international relations because i was talking like 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 you are eventually <laughs> eventually there was a new person who came in charge and they didn't know uh how, you know my way of thinking and so i got my courses back but um yeah it's it's just really sad it's it just goes back to people want the money they don't care about the truth and they want their well job, i've seen that job. i mean
1: certainly. Many academics now, and I, I see this with my colleagues, I mean, people who I used to be quite close to in another, you know, another lifetime. Uh, and so the priority is on getting grants. Uh, and so grants are following along, certainly not scientific method, right? Along with what grantors want uh, and the process. And this, I think, goes back to what I was saying about the end of the Cold War, is we no longer have a sense of the public good or, you know, of government or institutions that are run uh, uh, for for the public good. And so increasingly, whether you're, you know, at Harvard or, I mean, at Harvard, case of Harvard, we have the Drew Faust, the previous president. When she retired, she was appointed to the board of directors of Goldman Sachs. Unprecedented in American history, but it, it's telling. So the priority for these research institutes and their administrators is their ability to uh, um, suck up to um, global capital. That, that, that is what it's about. And so obviously, you know, uh, if we're talking about Goldman Sachs or, or BlackRock or other, you know, Blackstone other funds, these guys are sophisticated. They hire their consulting firms that tell them how to modify teaching and academic research at Harvard over time, so that it serves your purpose, essentially to cover your tracks for you, but doesn't do it in too explicit a way. You throw in a little bit of multiculturalism, a little bit of gender theory, uh, talk about how unfair it is, you know, that poor people are are not doing so well, but don't identify the process, right? How you got there. Um, And so it's become I think it's 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 a major major industry this whole sort of um distortion of reality the advertising public relations consulting and then on beyond you know into research academics journalism and the basic principles now uh it's it's a, a form of prostitution prostitution i mean i i like to talk about recently this issues of uh, incest, um, rape, and prostitution, which are the the three sort of these fundamental um, traumas in uh, human relations, in, in, well, sexual relations. But sexual relations are very profound in our society, uh, and all of them—incest, rape, and and uh, prostitution—have their equivalents. In the in in our political world and in in our intellectual world, and that's what we're really seeing is increasingly we're talking about prostitution, all of those incest is the false flag, the internal compromise in which the 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 compromise is so profound, so it's so compromising to the victim that it can't even be addressed. Uh, rape. Is similar in that it, it brings the person into this relationship, which was unwanted, but in a way which is so embarrassing and sometimes involves, of course, some sort of mutual uh, you know, attraction within the process, which makes it so horrific that the individual cannot even conceive what happened. And so many cases of rape in the real world, people never report it because it's so demeaning to the self and they can't even confront it in themselves. Uh, and uh uh in the case of prostitution, obviously, it becomes a service, that, that which could be expression of concern or affection or love or commitment to family becomes a means of making money. And that that we also see all across, especially in education, where rather than being some sort of concern or with society or with one's students, one's family, right? Uh, that it becomes just a means to produce money by maybe not selling your body, but selling your soul.
0: Yeah, and uh, I wanted to have you unpack COVID-1984, as I call it. And basically, this the same thesis I've held from the very beginning, January 2020, you kind of put into words. Um, I I never viewed that there was a pandemic uh, at all. And my theory has been that it was either some sort of a biological weapon that it was planned this whole event, but it was some sort of low low key bioweapon, or that it was all entirely manufactured from whole cloth. Either way, there was no pandemic. We we just could have gone on with our lives normally. But right. uh, you you wrote recently on your Substack, and I really recommend people. Read this article. The links will be in the description. You say Operation COVID-19 was a global coup d'etat disguised as a pandemic that was launched against China and the world in December 2019. And that continues on to the present. You say that that the reality is that a tiny group of key players representing the super rich in the US and in China coordinate closely to promote COVID lockdowns in China. And you basically say, and this was my view because all nations did it. I was living in Kazakhstan. I fled through the US to Mexico and everywhere they were applying this digital Dictatorship, this algorithm right, right. ghetto, social credit system, electronic right, right. concentration camp, passports, QR codes, injections. And I mean, in some places, you couldn't even buy food. It's like the book of Revelation. You can't buy or sell without the mark. You can't buy food. And in, in some, some places, they say you can't even go to the public park without vaccine certif- certificates. Right, right. And so, um, and I, I, I can see that it's elites, it's a global elite that has no allegiance to nationality so it's in, it's in the right. us it's in the us elite it's a chinese elite and they use as you said these these private tech it right. companies that are right. already embedded within all within all of our countries so we're we're basically right. being r- run by big tech uh right. so g- could you tell us more about uh, uh h- how right. you see covid
1: right right well i think you've described it quite accurately there i, I maybe just add a few words to say how it works and the I think the one of the key aspects is this concept of government. Um, so what you have now is we're being fed, uh, this narrative by sort of controlled opposition to say government is bad, inherently bad, and all the bad things happen because of evil politicians or bad government. Now, I obviously government is bad, uh, but I don't think, I think if you say that government cannot possibly serve the purpose, the, 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 the the needs of the people, um, that this is a nihilistic uh, and depressing perspective. And I think it's being force-fed to us by those power elites in order to discourage us from trying to organize ourselves and create government. So that that was the first thing I would say. Uh, The second part is, is, uh, talking about IT, uh, that basically uh, the primary transformation is the takeover of local government and central governments around the world uh, by these IT companies. So you have a local, whether it's you know in 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 uh, Sichuan province or it's in Oklahoma or for that matter uh, in in any other country in the world, local governments will be lobbied and then intimidated, but bribed and threatened in order to get these IT companies to essentially run government for them, and so. Whereas you previously had uh, government officials, good and bad, you know, but they basically made the decisions based upon various pressures from around them. Now you have like one or two government officials, you know, the president or the governor or whatever, and their job is just to outsource the budget to these IT companies who run everything for them. Uh, and this, of course, happened to universities, happened to other places as well. So this is a profound transformation. So essentially, when you see something which says "government does this" or "this is government," QR code, government is scanning it. There's no government. It's not government in any sense of the word. It's a totalitarian dictatorship of these global IT companies, and they they're, they they have some funny ways to hide their tracks, but it's not it's not that hard to figure out. I mean, basically, Amazon, Google. Uh, um, Alibaba. I mean, there's, there's like, you know, 10 or so big players, and then there are smaller, customized players, you know, for example, as I mentioned about Israel, like, you know, Black Cube, or these, these customized uh, uh, private intelligence firms uh, that work on and I think they were very much involved in, in what's happened in China. And, I was criticized for this, for not giving the evidence, but just take my word for it. <laughs> I, I, I'd be happy to give you the evidence at some future date, uh, but uh, they also, I think, were very much involved in it. And so that we combine these the sort of precedents. On the one hand, we have the research from DARPA and from RAND from the 1960s and 70s, how to modify people's behavior, and also how to take over, uh, basically, the government uh, through... This privatization drive. Then we have the research from Guantanamo Bay and the torture, so-called torture programs and from after nine, uh, after 2001, in which experiments were carried out. Uh, and Naomi Klein describes this in some detail, uh, on how to modify behavior through isolation, i.e. social distancing, masks, and other forms of, uh, of, uh, repeated Uh, ritual behavior and these rituals are set up to be meaning meaningless and fraudulent and most importantly that the person involved at some level knows that they're fraudulent but still does them and that degrades the ability to resist Uh, so you create very passive environments through that Uh, and that those two sort of uh, themes were combined uh, with uh, some Understanding of of IT and how it could be used to induce a passive, narcissistic, self indulgent, and decadent culture among people, especially sort of ru- the mid level ruling class. And that's I just dis- I discussed this in my article, the terrarium economy, in which we get sort of this this sort of fake ruling class people who went to you know to Harvard, they become lawyers and doctors, they own you know, $3 million, $5 million, $10 million in assets in a house, you know, uh, 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 by the beach or in France or in Italy. And they think they're a ruling class, but it's a fraud, right? The ruling class are these people who control basically the means of production and uh, they control the, the nature of money. And those people are worth, you know, hundreds of billions. We don't even know how much they're worth because they make it up. And for those people... The difference between a lawyer who has $10 million in assets and a homeless person is like the difference between uh, a roly-poly and a spider. I mean, we're all bugs from their perspective, but they know, based upon the reports they got from their private intelligence and strategy teams, that by creating this false terrarium economy wherein there's an imagined ruling class headed by someone like Biden or some, you know, and there's poor people in it. And there's this sort of conflict within there that you can sort of blind people to the fact that it's all enclosed and controlled by this elite group. And finally, I just add one word on that, that much of the analysis, and I hate to stress sort of Marxist analysis, because I'm not really a Marxist, but I'm, I'm practical, whatever works I will use, as I was talking about Josh the other day. And so Marxist econ- economics is extremely helpful. I don't think we should dismiss it just because we have some sort of bias fed to us by controlled opposition. And so basically, uh, we're in this trap system, uh, and ideology is being controlled by these people, means of production, means of distribution, means of communication, and money itself is being controlled with them. And they're dumbing us down. I think we have supercomputers doing this. They're calculated out. You know how fast or how slow to move towards a totalitarian system. How to create false conflicts. You know, like Trump is excluded from Twitter or whatever. Totally irrelevant. Um, but it works because people's thinking has been degraded uh, by technology, and technology increasingly, including Facebook or Twitter. It's being designed to degrade your ability to think
0: yeah and just to go to a a step further um you know where they want to take us because i feel like we're still in the eye of the the storm Uh, operation operation covet is not yet uh finished by any uh, yeah. means, and you, you write, as a result, global institutions like Bretton Woods, UN, IT corporations, Google, Facebook, Microsoft, Oracle are being militarized as we speak. What they have been authorized to do to Russians today, they will do to you tomorrow, and there will be no appeal precisely because the policies were formulated and implemented in secret. Your bank account, your automobile, your every action can be shut down by these hidden forces. The oppression of citizens in Canada, New Zealand, and Austria was the front line of this war against the citizens of The Earth, now something far worse, is slouching towards Kiev to be born. A shadow government lurks behind the titles U.S. government, German government, NATO, World Bank, or U.N., and it will be able to seize everything you possess and put you in jail without any due process. A lot of people talk about World Economic Forum, uh, the Great Reset, uh, uh, techno-fascism, global technocracy, and um, I like the term algorithm ghetto because... It's putting yes. us and, and I think they, they want to tr- sort of create this global government or global totalitarian system where all nations are run like this. And if if you don't think like the system wants you to think, it'll just shut you off. You can't go to work. Uh, oh. you, you, your permission to travel will be shut off, locally or internationally. Uh, you know, you don't even have your. Sh- I mean, here and, and where I used to work, you, um, all the teachers had to get injected, or they lost their job. I know people who, who were fired because they refused to be injected with what I call Pentagon juice, because it was the Pentagon, the <laughs> uh, Dar- DARPA like in twenty twelve, who created that mRNA. Tech. So just your, your further thoughts on, on their end game, what they're trying to, to achieve and right, and, and right. In, all, in all countries, like we see countries like Russia. I mean, you touch on this again, that mm. is the struggles in nations like you see in Russia, they're implementing some of this stuff, China, every nation right. uh, to different degrees. So what sort of their uh, end game?
1: Right. Well, I think that their end game first is to uh, defang uh, the population. I think that's number one priority is that they may not have a complete consensus among the global elite on what the end game is. Some people, this is my speculation. Some people wouldn't just kill you know 95% of the population. Others are more open to, you know, having a large slave population. And so it's not clear whether the population should be, you know, 3 billion or 500 million or whatever. And this is related, of course, to the confusion about the, what climate change is and how catastrophic it is. So if you embrace, uh, you know, among the globalists, the idea that climate change really is catastrophic and we're not going to be able to live on this planet for a variety of reasons, then, yeah, obviously you have to bring the population down to about 400 million because it can't support that number of people. If you don't believe that, if you think, you know, it's, it's, it's more or less stable, then obviously you can tolerate more. So it's not clear, I think, there's not a a total decision consensus to say we all all globalists agree that we're going to kill off this many and we're going to you know keep as slaves this many, uh, so there is some debate. But the basic assumptions are the same: that we will create a a sort of false sense of democratic process and liberalism, sort of false multicultural gender. Uh, good-feeling rainbow flag uh, stuff uh, as a way to uh, sort of um, fool people and for the period until we get them to the next stage. And when we get to the next stage, if you're in your house and at any moment the so-called government can shut off your credit cards and if you go outside, a drone will shoot you dead, then then we don't have to care what you think, right? We've 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 gotten to the next stage, and then at that point, I think all the you know the feel good multi culty stuff can go in the garbage because now we have essentially implemented the next stage, um, and at that point, uh, then then I think we're looking at you know the real uh, third world war, uh, which will be quite brutal. Um, and I I, I also want to note, as I said in my paper. Uh, in my, my article on, third, on opium war, that I, I, I really do think that Israel uh, played a major role in this process. I'm not saying that, I mean, I'm, it's not, I mean, my father is Jewish. So, I mean, I can't take, you know, say I blame, blame everything on Jews. I mean, any more than Marx could do so. Um, but I think that if we look at the know-how for QR codes and geofencing and all these things, that basically Israel was the pioneer in this, and that many of the programs that are being used now globally in the United States and places like Oklahoma and Louisiana were based on Israeli models for social control, and the Israelis have an expertise that they built up. I mean, on the one hand, there's the DARPA studies, RAND studies in the background, but the Israelis were quite expert. And how to control people and monitor them 24 seven. And they, 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 the sort of cutting edge was in Israel. And now they found a global market for it uh, in this COVID 19 operation. And that's, it's been enormous, you know, profits for these specialized private Israeli firms uh, all over, including places probably everywhere. I mean, it's been documented in the case of the United States, for example, in Louisiana and Oklahoma. But my guess is in places like China or even in Russia, that there's substantial amount of outsourcing of these, you know, control systems, IT systems. Probably we have some sort of, um, how do I say it, um, symbiotic relationship between big tech, Amazon, Cisco, Google, Facebook, you know the big players, and then the specialized, they like Black Cube or these others, these uh, Israeli uh, IT intelligence firms, which do the the initial work and some of the dirty work.
0: Just to get a little geopolitical, get your thoughts on. I mean, you mentioned World War Three. There's uh, Ukraine and and um, uh, China now. I mean, basically right. the, the the big three powers, right? The the U.S., NATO, you know, Brussels, EU, West, and then that pole of Russia and China you know the taiwan right. issue and ukraine and as you said all governments seem to have been penetrated by these it private intelligence for sure uh, transnational elite networks but at the same time we see rivalry between you know us china russia um how do you sort of explain this you know apparent uh, contradiction and what right. what wh- how things might um you know uh, what do you, you what's the, sort of Putin's vision as you see it or Xi Jinping's vision right. and, and right. Wh- wh- where things might go
1: right well i i think this is I, one of the major problems we have in politics and in, in journalism is just that our intellectual capacity has been so degraded people don't read books they don't understand philosophy i mean if you go back, you know, 1960s or 1940s, a lot of people engaged in journalism or in discussion in, in universities, they knew. I mean, they read Kant, they knew about, you know, Aristotle or for that matter, you know, Confucius, and they had an understanding of meta- these epistemological and, and etiological problematics behind politics. And that has all been sort of cleared out. So we're stuck with a politics of like bad guys and you know country to country confrontations. And because our minds have been so simplified, this, the schemata we use are so uh, are so crude, it's hard for us to think three-dimensionally about how you can have conflicts between nation states at the same time that you have cooperation between multinational corporations, et cetera. And so there, I would say they're basically four sort of axes. One is the nation state. It hasn't disappeared, probably won't. It has an enduring quality, no matter how outdated it is. It, it appeals to part of the human brain to say I have a country and I belong to it. Uh, the second is the multinational corporation, the corporations which are they follow their own rules. They fight with each other, and sometimes they hate each other. But they're not following the trajectory of the, the 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 structure of the nation state. And we see this increasingly to be the case because of the IT revolution, if you will. The third is the ethnic group—the sense of being whether it's Caucasian or Chinese or you know Indian—and we have these transnational ethnic groups which span the world. And increasingly, we have populations of Indians in the United States or you know in in uh, South Africa or wherever who work together in their own way it doesn't necessarily correspond with that of the multinational corporation but it's significant uh, and the and the final is class uh and class uh, as as we know has been intentionally I think stamped as being a Marxist communist concept that is sort of like forbidden uh in fact, the idea of class is an essential issue in politics and society. I mean, Mills talked about it. It was not a Marxist concept. And I, I think it's really important for us to sort of take that out, to say we can talk about class and class interest without embracing you know, a, a Marxist perspective, and it, it should be front and center of our analysis. So it's very hard to understand the, what's going on without getting those four different players and what we're seeing is essentially an interference pattern uh, between these different factors. So to answer your question, I'm sorry it took so long. I think someone like Putin or Xi Jinping uh, are not so free in their decision making process. Uh, in some ways, I think the compromise they make is they get to be on TV and make it look like they make decisions, but in fact that they they basically have to play. Uh, To the needs of these multinational corporations and and billionaires, uh, wealthy individuals in their country and around the world uh, who are pulling their strings, uh, and that that's increasingly the case. So I wouldn't say the nation state has disappeared, and there are bureaucratic entities which are you know focused on the particular nation like Russia, the United States, but I would say increasingly transnational forces are uh, quite significant, and it's. Finally, it's not totally new. The First World War followed the same trajectory, basically. And we had the contradictions of these joint held uh, in, in 1914 um, petrochemical, steel, uh, and weapons manufacturers in which British, French, Russian, German owned stakes. In men, you know, weapons manufacturing in each of these countries, making profits off of wars, and that that was essentially how the First World War unfolded. Of course, it changed in nature once you had millions of people dead, and you could no longer pull that off. But the initial start of this of these, of you know the First World War is basically a another uh, I don't know if false flag is the right word for it, but basically uh, the assassination of, uh, of Archduke Ferdinand. Uh, was not a totally clean thing, and it certainly didn't need to end up in a world war. It became a world war because of the financial interests in it, and the you know was these these various different extremely wealthy families who had bought into arms manufacturing, uh, and uh, that that's what led to the route I mean, basically, the Russian and the German revolution in uh, nineteen eighteen
0: nineteen nineteen you just on the issue of marx i mean i I've been classified as a commie, which is nothing of the sort and uh right. i just i fe- i mean i feel just like you um yeah. it's very useful Marxian uh analysis i've had many leftists and Marxists on to have right. them break things down and you the use of class as well obviously there's i mean i've met people in the u s Americans who were upper class rich who would refuse to talk to me because i was local like literally we'd be sitting at the table and they don't talk to me but then someone else comes along who's in their class they can't shut up the two of them go (laughs) talking but i they won't talk to me because i'm i'm a lower class so obviously this is a reality and there was one point i think where I I agree with most of you know what you're saying there. There wasn't one point I didn't agree on, but you know, oh, I'm not here. I'm, I'm not here to debate. Well,
1: to, I'm curious. Well, debate, it? but,
0: yeah, it's, it's in your book where you talk about the climate security threat, uh, and I think you were talking about ending the use of petroleum and coal. Uh, right. you, the War economy. Do uh, you, so you think
1: I went too far? No,
0: no, no, no more cars and fewer airplanes. I think the issue is I see what we were talking about earlier. We see some of these people. Uh, you know, like the Klaus Schwab's and all these people um, saying that as well. So it's kind of like to okay. separate. Well, well, just what's your take on the climate security issue?
1: So I, I really appreciate you bringing that up. And it, it has been an issue previously in, because things that I so I wrote that a while ago. Right. The, and the, I mean, the, the issue about the response to climate and to the petroleum based economy and uh, Sadly, that agenda has been taken up with people with a totally different, you know, uh, intention than myself. So my intention was uh, at multiple levels, energy independence, i.e. produce your own energy and reduce your use of energy. Uh, Second uh, was that to eliminate the role of petrochemical corporations and, and those banks related to it, their political influence. So we make policy, whether it's, you know how we run our communities without being force fed automobiles and you know freeways and other things which we didn't used to have and we don't need and they're very destructive so it's a multifaceted it's not simply to say that climate change is going to kill us all but also say that automobiles are dangerous that petrochemicals are bad for you and for the environment and it's a, basically a hidden tax for multinational corporations, every time you have to use plastics, you have to use automobiles, whatever, to live because of the way corrupt politicians have designed your city, then you're being forced to support this this uh, totalitarian system. But to come to the issue of climate change, is what I discussed with Josh the other day, um, I, I started out by saying, I don't know. I mean, my knowledge is limited. Uh, But I have read now quite a lot on the subject, and I taught a class on climate change. And I think there is sufficient evidence to say that is a general phenomenon that we're seeing a major alteration of the climate. However, to say that it's simplistically because we have too many, you know, gas, uh, petroleum driven cars is not the case. The climate change is a result. It's a It's a complex phenomenon. It involves the misuse of land, misuse of water, spread of deserts that result, the destruction of the oceans from microplastics, a whole variety, and then the collapse of of, uh, uh, biodiversity, which many scientists say is a much more serious threat than than the alteration of the climate for us. Uh, So there are multiple factors involved, and unfortunately, the discourse in academics and in the media has been simplified and reduced to a cartoonish way so on the one hand you have you know whatever Greta Thur- what's it Thornberg, is it the yeah. name and uh, and and Al Gore and other people who give this incredibly simplistic you know vision of what needs to be done and it it doesn't touch. You know, class it doesn't address who owns you know Exxon and how do they use it? How is it related to foreign war? I mean, none of that is there. It's just to say, um and of course, the assumption is that politicians are insensitive and don't listen to the people and they don't know what's really happening, which is definitely not the case. Politicians know exactly what's what's happening, but they have their masters, and so that sort of analysis that we see in many. I'd say most of the sort of you know, environmental climate change NGOs is a base blatant fraud. Um, but the the concern of a catastrophic alteration of our of our climate, of our biosystem that might lead eventually to human extinction, I would not dismiss that. I would only say that it looks like these exaggerated scenarios in which people say we'll all be dead in 10 years or 20 years, 30 years, that this seems pretty clear to have been wrong. Uh, But it doesn't mean we won't won't all be dead in a thousand years, right, or in 500 years. Uh, And I think that's not acceptable. Uh, On the other hand, we have these, you know, Trump and others who say that all discussion of climate change or alteration is all a fraud. It's fine to use, you know, fossil fuels. uh, And uh, we're being uh, misled by this fake, uh, you know, IMF World Economic Forum uh, uh, um, agenda uh, to believe things which are certainly not, which are totally false, uh, and I, I don't, I don't buy that at all. I think that that argument is funded also by corporate interests, and most notably that when they ac- criticize those, drawing attention to the threat of to the environment, to to the climate, they. Attack these cardboard figures like Greta or Al Gore. They don't go after books like The Sixth Extinction or these rather complex, carefully written, you know, books which describe a complex, dangerous phenomenon in the world. And so, basically, uh, the reason why people are skeptical of climate change, in my opinion, is that climate change is like scientism, or for that matter, COVID nineteen. Climate change is being defined for us by a tiny group of self-interested people who are being backed by global finance. And their purpose is not to end climate change, but to use climate change, again, as a traumatic, a trauma, a deep psychological mass trauma that will allow us to move people to, uh, to somewhere they would never go naturally. And that is to a system in which money is controlled by multinational banks. Uh, through their fronts, their NGO fronts, or their so-called, you know, uh, uh, global governance.
0: We, we've covered, I think, the main points. And then, you know, one of my last questions for you would be our response to all of these things, uh, you know, these, these uh, crazy uh, global elites. And, um, you know, my, my response is twofold, is trying to resist as you talk about, you know, politically fight back speak the truth organizing but also the second part is preparing for worse worse case uh, sure. s- scenarios like if I, if my my accounts are getting uh shut off and I don't I can't use money anymore and I'm going to starve to death well I have to start preparing you know there's a lot of people fleeing down here to Mexico where I am there's people leaving urban areas to rural areas you know they are they're creating their plan Bs you know plot of land right. with with water and, and and food creating networks uh decentralizing uh, using technology as well and so just so uh, what do we do what sort of your uh you know advice how do we uh move forward now
1: right well, I would the, the first point I, I would stress is that the current system in the United States and globally uh, is so corrupt, so infected, that it cannot be reformed internally. That, that would be my, I think we all have to recognize this. So you're not going to elect somebody, whether it's in Mexico or the United States, who's going to be, I mean, your Mexican president was one of the better politicians out there in the world. But his, what he could do was, was quite limited by the system in which he's working. And by the way, I should mention that my book, I only had two commercial publishers that were willing to publish my book, uh, Fear No Evil, and that was in Mexico and South Korea. So I'm very grateful actually to the Mexican people for, for supporting me back then three years, well, two and a half years ago. Um, so that's the first thing. Second, so that means we have to create our own system. And what I advocate, I've written about this now at length, is to say uh, that we're all, a lot of us are in serious trouble, um, but we need to come together and, and to support ourselves uh, and to create our own uh, communities, which are institutionalized, right? So you, me, a couple other people say, we form our own government. We form our, we have our own constitution. We're committed to our, each other, and we create our own economy where we produce our own food, we create our own uh, utensils and instruments, and we are essentially independent. Uh, Now, of course, the powers that be want to shut this down, and they'll use extreme methods. But if we get to a critical mass in our country, in our region, in our country and globally, they will not be able to do that. That doesn't mean they won't be able to kill some of us, but they, I think, they will not be able to shut down such a movement. But I think it probably what's most difficult about it is that it means essentially giving up hope in all these false promises that have been made to us that we thought the UN, Me Too included, United Nations, the United States, or European Union, you know, other organizations that they could you know play some sort of positive role, um, and that we really have to build. Um, From the bottom up, you know, from basically you, me, our neighbors come together and say we'll help each other. I mean, we'll we'll you know grow food or uh, build things, make our you know clothes, whatever it is. And that although it seems incredibly you know backwards and inefficient and and uh, uh, um, counterproductive to go down to that level, basic means of production, that in fact, in the long term, that forms the solid foundation for something which is independent. And that by contrast, we have so many thoughtful people, you know, progressives or whoever, who are, they're trapped in the system. I mean, to some degree, that's true of me. They're dependent on money given to them by progressive thinking, rich people, and, and they're unable to address real issues. So if you had to choose, you're, you're better off being independent. And I was in, I'm not just an independent candidate, but when I was in Korea, essentially unable to work in the U.S. The last year, I lived in Yosu in the south of Korea. We had a tiny apartment. I mean, I lived minimally and w- and w- with my friend uh, who's on the second floor, and we, we cooked together, we cooperated. Our costs were very low, uh, and we were able to uh, sustain ourselves and be politically active. It doesn't require money. In fact, most political action does not require money. But we're fed this line that somehow, unless you have, you know, millions of dollars flowing in like Bernie Sanders or whatever, that you can't be politically active. It's a fiction. It's a fiction. In fact, I think the real revolution will come when people snap out of this narcissistic view of success for me, recognized cooperation, and, you know, uh, uh, mutual support as the foundation of political action and start to create their own truly independent communities, which will be the building blocks on which we create. Um, I don't want to say it's a totally new system because it will be based on moral philosophy, ideas about governance that go back you know, thousands of years. So it's, I don't, I'm not, you know, in that respect, I'm not a Marxist, right? I I don't say throw away everything and we're going to engage in some radical modernism. I think, if anything, we need to go back to governance as it existed before. And the United States, as I've written, uh, the native peoples, like the Iroquois, had tremendously sophisticated ideas that were based on Long-term sustainable development, for that matter, in China as well. It's hard to imagine now, but there were ideas about economics in which you looked at how where you're going to be in 200 years, not you know next month's stock return, you know, returns on your stock, and you know, and that 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 sort of revolutionary change in the concept at the conceptual level, I think, will be the 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 part that goes together with the. Uh, independent community. Independent community changes the economic means of production and, and support. And the, the intellectual philosophical revolution says growth, consumption, uh, are, are bad, right? I mean, cons- frugality is a, is a, uh, is a virtue, right? Um, and the intellectual depth, spiritual depth is far superior to consumption, going to movies, traveling, whatever, you can sit in your own room, little space, and have profoundly deep, you know, philosophical spiritual experience from reading books, talking to people, creating art. Um, it doesn't take money. and in, in fact, that would be my final point is that I think we have to end the money economy uh, that we humans have lived on the earth for millions of years with minimal use of money, Um, and that even until the 1930s, most people supported themselves at the local level uh, through mutual support, right? You buy, you get butter from your neighbor, you know, carrots from another neighbor, you give your potatoes, you know, that sort of exchange. Some of it included money, but most of it did not include money. You produce energy from a windmill or from a water mill, uh, or from your your uh, your horse or your cow or your own manual labor, and you're basically economically independent. You need some money on the weekends or, you know, to go to the market and buy some specialized products. Um, but I think uh, basically it's entirely possible and preferable to pull ourselves out of this digitalized monetary system, which is the primary tool used by the global elite uh, to uh, pin us down and to uh, sort of slowly ease us into slavery.
0: Yeah. They want to put us on their digital farm and get us off of our farm. And you echo a lot of uh, sentiments from uh, past guests I've had with that talk about basically what you're saying in, in different ways with variations, like a parallel society, parallel structure, parallel right. economy and that sort of thing. And so um where would be the best place for people to uh, go to to find out? I'll include all of the links in the descriptions, but uh, if you want to tell us where's the best place for people to go to find. Oh,
1: well, so, I mean, obviously the best way, the first best starting point is to be able to sit down with your own family and have a serious discussion about what's happening in the United States. That, that, that I, it, it trumps everything else because so many families, people are not able to speak honestly about what's happening, or even to address the challenges that we face, so we have to overcome this this um, this taboo um, the sort of forbidden truths uh, and have real discussions with family members, friends, and neighbors. Uh, for my for my part, my little contribution. I hope is to be a catalyst to get people to say yeah that's the way to go and obviously I'm here to support you if you want to contact me I'll do everything I can to be helpful to you uh, in terms of websites I have my own blog circles and squares i i i dot uh, asia I do a lot of writing in Chinese Japanese and Korean uh, which might and I have stuff in Spanish and other languages as well which might be interesting to those my field is Asia so I was at I was a Chinese major. I studied Japanese for many years and Korean as well. Um, uh, and then I have for, for my presidential candidacy, I uh, have, uh, emmanuelprez.com and that has, you know, my speeches, my book in 14 languages and then the prefaces in some another 20 languages. Uh, and then my speeches and writings. And then I have the, uh, uh, Provisional government, Asia, U.S. prov Gov, in which I sort of put down some of the basic concepts for what a provisional government based on the Constitution of the United States would be, Uh, and that a purpose of that is to say, obviously, I can't do it myself, but I can set at least a vision for what is possible that would inspire other people to do it, Uh, and the underlying assumption there is that we at least a strategy behind that is to say um, these people control everything. But now, how how do you overthrow that? And I think there are some some basic principles in, in politics about how you do it. And the first is to say that they have no legitimacy, that the United States is based upon the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution. That defines the United States. Other organizations which defy those that basic understanding un- agreement, which defines government, those are not government, they're uh, criminal syndicates. And so we need to identify among a larger, and it's, it's already started, but a larger population of ordinary working people and intellectuals, this sense that this is our position. We are the government. Why are we the government? Because we follow the constitution. We follow the rule of law and we follow the scientific method. Those people say they're government, but if we look at them, they're set up by you know uh, Google and uh, and Facebook and you know Israeli uh, it, you know private intelligence firms, etc. They're not government in any sense. The Democratic Party and the Republican Party, um, there's not a word in the Constitution about the role of the Democratic Party or the Republican Party. So. If they are making policy, then this is profoundly unconstitutional. They have seized control of the process of making law and enforcing law. I mean, both both privatization of police and the military, and also the, uh, the 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 process of making policy within these political parties. So our position, I think the smarter position is to, is to pull back and say, I'm not going to engage. Well, I'm going to talk. I mean, I'd love to be on the show, but I'm not interested in compromising with these people. I'm going to say, me, you, a couple of my friends, we are the United States. These people are running a criminal syndicate that is posing as the United States, but they have no legitimacy. Now, this declaration in itself, does not change it's not magic right it's sort of a you might say a, a speech act is that you know the theory of the 1930s on uh, on literature it's like you know a getting married right the priest says i declare you man and wife right now this is just a doesn't mean anything right but because of its ritual power and the way that it's set up it is transformative it suddenly makes people you know committed to a lifetime together. And so something like that, to say, we declare that we are independent, that we follow the Constitution, that we are the government, that we're going to form a more perfect union amongst ourselves. At the beginning, maybe people won't take it seriously, but over time, they will, and that we will build up from the ground up. But the underlying implication there is that most of these institutions, including universities, and government, and all sorts of other organizations, they used to serve their function. They could serve their function again, but now they're essentially criminal in, criminal syndicates. They do not have legitimacy, in my eyes, and anybody who looks at it objectively and gets beyond this trauma, I think it's quite clear what we're looking at.
0: As Tommy J said, Thomas Jefferson, in the poster behind me, Liberty yes. begins... begins uh, with you so Very there's a, a lot to digest there um uh, Emmanuel and I'd like to thank you again for being on geopolitics and empire
1: much much appreciated I really appreciate the opportunity uh to speak uh, I had a lot of trouble in I mean I just back in the US so it's I'm readjusting and uh I to be honest for a while there I thought I'd never get back to the US so I I think there is hope and there are people who are really trying Uh, and that uh, starting with you, uh, we can really uh, change things.
0: I hope you enjoyed this Geopolitics and Empire podcast. The website is geopoliticsandempire.com, and I encourage you to sign up to the free email list that notifies you of every new podcast and other important updates. The email list and website are our last lines of defense. We're being censored and deplatformed. It's almost impossible to find geopolitics and empire on the google search engine we've been blacklisted youtube frequently strikes videos facebook restricts our page reddit twitter and linkedin take down posts after the associated press mentioned geopolitics and empire in a 2021 article co-written with nato or the atlantic council our patreon account was terminated vimeo also terminated our pro account at one point In April of 2022, the Department of Homeland Security had PayPal ban us for life. The best free way to help geopolitics and empire is to leave a review on Apple Podcasts or elsewhere and subscribe to all of our media channels. You can find the video broadcast now on five platforms, Odyssey, Rockfin, Rumble, BitChute, and Brighteon. You can find the audio broadcast on the entire podcast ecosystem, SoundCloud, Apple, Spotify, and so on. My current favorite social media channels are Twitter and Telegram, but you can also find us on Gab, MeWe, Minds, Float, VK, Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn. You can support this guerrilla signal by donating via DonorBox, Buy Me a Coffee, Subscribestar, or Crypto. You can purchase a consultation with the host to talk about expatriation, geopolitics, or podcasting. You can also become a monthly or annual member via Stripe and receive benefits such as partaking in a monthly member Zoom call get access to a weekly recording of my random thoughts and a private telegram channel. Thank you for listening.